There was a man who presented to the emergency room at least two days after he drank a homemade snow globe. The medical team wasn't told that he drank that snow globe, so they didn't know that he drank ethylene glycol, which is the same alcohol that's found in antifreeze. They did know that he was suffering from ethanol withdrawal. He came in with an elevated anion gap metabolic acidosis, along with renal failure, altered mental status that progressed to cranial and peripheral neuropathy after the acidosis corrected. By the time he came in, his acidosis wasn't too bad, and he had no osmolal gap. Cases like this highlight why ethylene glycol can be hard to diagnose, especially if it's a late presentation because the findings aren't sensitive or specific to that poisoning. And if it's a late presentation, then there's a likelihood that things are already too late for that patient. So first off, what is ethylene glycol? Well, it's an alcohol, but it's really a diol, so it has two alcohol groups. It really doesn't look too different on paper from ethanol, but having that extra alcohol group makes all the difference. Ethylene glycol by itself, if it's never metabolized in the body, actually doesn't cause harm in humans. It can cause some mild sedation, but overall, it's pretty water-soluble as is, so the body can excrete it as is. The problem is without treatment, the body is going to do something to it, so that's what makes it a toxic alcohol. This is what happens with methanol, which is found in poorly distilled moonshine. To get moonshine, you have to distill a wash, which means heating it up. Heating it up causes the lighter components to vaporize, so you can catch those vapors and condense them down back into a liquid. Methanol is the lightest alcohol possible, so it's what gets vaporized first. And when the person making the moonshine doesn't throw that head of distillate away, then they're gonna have methanol in their drink. And methanol is water-soluble in itself too, so the body can get rid of it as is. But that's not what actually happens. Methanol is broken down to chemicals that can cause blindness. So why are these toxic alcohols? Well, let's take a look. How are alcohols broken down? In the liver, we have alcohol dehydrogenase. That ace suffix means enzyme. So in this case, we're looking at an oxidation of an alcohol functional group to a carbonyl. Keep in mind, primary, secondary, and tertiary alcohols do make a difference. Ethanol becomes ethanal, which is an aldehyde that's sometimes called acetaldehyde, acetaldehyde. Isopropyl alcohol, which is rubbing alcohol, becomes acetone, which is nail polish remover. And that's the final form in the body because this kind of ketone isn't reactive in the body like an aldehyde is. So what happens to the aldehyde? Well, it gets broken down again by aldehyde dehydrogenase, A's as an enzyme. Aldehyde oxidized to carboxylic acid. Ethanol becomes ethanoic acid, which is vinegar. Methanol becomes methanoic acid, which is toxic. And in ethylene glycol's case, glycoaldehyde becomes glycolic acid. But that second alcohol also needs metabolism. So glyoxylic acid to oxalic acid, bringing us back to the patient who drank the snow globe. The patient was going through alcohol withdrawal. While obtaining the history, his son had mentioned that his dad could hear voices and see little elves dancing around a few nights before. This likely alcoholic hallucinosis is not the same as the delirium from severe withdrawal, but important details were that one, he was in withdrawal, two, he may have recently binged on alcohol, and three, he was malnourished because of his chronic alcoholism. All of these can cause acidosis, which he had at admission. A withdrawal post-binge means that there could have been a sudden, temporary stop on ethanoic acid production, also known as acetic acid. Now, that acetic acid can be utilized for energy, or it can be converted to acetyl-CoA, which can be used to make fats with the end goal of making energy. 
It's not a great source of energy alone explaining why alcoholics become malnourished, but when ethanol levels in the blood start to fall, then stress levels start to increase. Increased stress means increased cortisol. It means increased norepinephrine levels promoting lipolysis. The patient's in starvation, so insulin becomes low. This activates lipase, an enzyme that breaks fat down. Long-chain fatty acids go into the mitochondria in the liver, where even more acetyl-CoA is generated, so much so that the Krebs cycle becomes overloaded and keto acids are made. The problem with all of this was that the patient's blood didn't test positive for ketones. That's not definitive, but whatever the case was, he did have high anion gap metabolic acidosis. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. In the body, the definition of acid is a little bit different than what you would learn in chemistry class. In high school chemistry, you learn that an acid is a chemical that donates hydrogen ion. You learn that strong acids completely dissociate, so they give off all their H+, and weak acids like acetic acid do not completely dissociate. No one ever forgets their high school chemistry titration experiments, but thinking about how it happens in the body is a little different. You see, the human body has a good buffer system to maintain pH, What's pH? It's the negative log of the hydrogen concentration in solution. Human blood is kept around 7.4. Any lower, there's acid. Any higher, there's base. And human pH is maintained in part by breathing. Fun fact, when people lose a lot of fat from diet and exercise, a lot of that fat is actually breathed out over time. Because what are fats? They're long chains of carbon. What's the simplest form of carbon in our body? Carbon dioxide. So human body is made of, on average, about 60% water. Life on Earth is carbon-based and needs water and oxygen to survive. So what happens when carbon dioxide is dissolved in water? Well, some of it forms into carbonic acid. But remember, if it's in water, this is a solution. And carbonic acid isn't a strong acid, so it doesn't completely dissociate. So we have an equilibrium of positive hydrogen ion and negative bicarbonate, which is in part baking soda. The more carbon dioxide that you have in your body, the more acid you have. The less carbon dioxide, the more base. So if you increase your breathing rate, you're accelerating carbon dioxide removal. Less carbon dioxide is more base because the equilibrium shifts to help produce more carbon dioxide to keep up, and that shift consumes acid. If you stop breathing, then carbon dioxide builds up. More CO2 means more acid. But what happens when we go outside the system and have metabolic acidosis, meaning that the body is either making acids or it can't get rid of them? Well, this is where things can get confusing. Body water needs to be electrically neutral, so positive and negative charges need to be equal. But how do you measure pH? By the hydrogen ion concentration. Hydrogen is positive, so it has to contribute to the overall positive charge, right? Well, if you do the math, you'll find that the hydrogen concentration by that equation is several million times less than the sodium concentration. Sodium is the predominant cation, so if H plus is why we're calling it acidosis, but it's also millions of times less than sodium and also bicarbonate, then why do we call it acidosis? Well, let's pick the easiest and most abundant ions in serum. 
Sodium is overwhelmingly abundant in extracellular fluid, so it's the main positive charge. Potassium is around two as a distant second, but it's more than 20 times less than sodium. Chloride is the predominant negative charge, and bicarb isn't measured directly, the value comes from carbon dioxide. So if the blood is supposed to be electrically neutral, then subtracting the easily measured predominant anions from the easily measured predominant cations should be close to zero. Or if it's not, then can we collect an average of what the difference is in healthy people? And that difference is not zero, which brings us to the idea of an anion gap. The blood has lots of negative charges that aren't necessarily easy to measure. Proteins like albumin are negatively charged at physiologic pH. Other organic anions like lactate can have levels that fluctuate in the body at various times. So there's always an equilibrium to maintain, but there's also the requirement that positive and negative must be equal. So, if we know that there's going to be a gap no matter what, that there's always going to be more negative anions that aren't accounted for in the body, and that equation holds true, then what happens if we rearrange the equation to center on bicarbonate? That would mean that changes in anions impact changes on bicarbonate. And what happens when bicarbonate levels change? Well, that impacts carbon dioxide. What happens when carbon dioxide levels change? acid levels change. So let's go back to the name, metabolic acidosis. Metabolic meaning that the body is producing something causing a large influx of acid. And that name could be misleading because by producing anion through metabolism, that increases the anion gap. If the gap is larger than the difference between sodium and chloride plus the gap, which equals bicarbonate, decreases. Bicarbonate is a base. What happens when there's less base? The blood becomes acidic due to an increase in anion produced by metabolism. This equation tells us a lot about acid-base disorders. What happens when there's hypochloremia, that is, low chloride presence in blood? This can happen from repeat vomiting as a gastrointestinal loss. And so if chloride decreases, then the total anion goes down. That means bicarbonate increases, so alkalosis. What happens when someone takes a diuretic? That would cause anion excretion, so decrease in anions. That would cause bicarbonate to go up, meaning alkalosis. How about a woman who's having a heart attack? She goes into cardiac arrest, so her heart stops. She's resuscitated but doesn't produce any urine after coming back. Because of tissue hypoperfusion, the medical team finds elevated lactate, which is an organic anion. Additional anion decreases bicarbonate, causing acidosis. Remember, doctors didn't know about this patient's snow globe at first. His high anion gap, metabolic acidosis, was attributed to kidney failure rather than toxic alcohol ingestion at first because, well, there was no osmolal gap, and a CT scan looked like he could have had a kidney infection, all of which could be consistent with high anion gap metabolic acidosis, except after a few days, the antibiotics weren't working because he didn't have an infection. And after a few days, it may have already been too late. Alcohols dissolved in body water exert a different pressure than water alone, contributing to something called the osmolal gap, which could be helpful in diagnosing ethylene glycol ingestion at first. But remember, as the toxic alcohol gets metabolized, less of it is present as it's consumed. That osmolal gap disappears over time. It becomes harder to diagnose ethylene glycol, which leaves the patient with kidney injury. It takes time to biopsy the kidney and for those samples to return. It takes time to analyze the urine for the presence of crystals. So because of these, sometimes the poisoning is found too late. But thinking about the high anion gap, 
which anion exactly was being produced by ethylene glycol. We know alcohol is oxidized to aldehyde, then to carboxylic acid, and again because it's a diol producing oxalate. Oxalate has a negative two charge, meaning to the anion gap equation, it does significantly contribute to the gap term in context of charge. So that's why there's a profound anion gap metabolic acidosis usually found with ethylene glycol ingestion. Not just oxalate, but the other organic acids that are metabolites too. But from a chemistry standpoint, it can be reactive with things floating around the blood. But what things exactly? Well, sodium is positive and it can interact with it, but the result isn't anything spectacular. Potassium is the next most abundant cation that doesn't do anything either. Which brings us to calcium. Calcium has a tendency to form solids. I mean, it's in our bones. Calcium has a plus two charge, so it binds one-to-one -one with oxalate. Calcium oxalate falls out of solution and becomes a solid crystal. And as these crystals form, they collect in the kidneys. The innate immune system reacts. White blood cells can phagocytose some of these crystals, but then those white blood cells die in a way that trigger more inflammation called necroptosis. More immune cells enter the kidneys, causing damage because signals are sent that something's there that shouldn't be. These crystals continue to cause damage to the lining of the kidney, damage that may not be reversible if it's not caught early enough. So the part of all of this that might disturb people is that over days after ingesting ethylene glycol, the metabolic acidosis could resolve itself. It looks like this is what happened to the patient who drank a snow globe as the high anion gap metabolic acidosis did actually resolve. The oxalate is consumed by reacting to calcium and would then no longer be part of the anion gap equation because it's not an anion anymore, it's an ionic solid. No more osmolal gap either since it's all gone. And the acid part of it wouldn't be detectable after days if someone happens to survive that original injury and this patient happened to survive that original injury. But the things aren't done here. On day six of his hospital admission, neurology consult found part of his face drooping. He had sluggish responses to light and myoclonic jerks of his limbs. He also had lower distal limb weakness, slow tongue movement, and diminished reflexes, all while complaining of distal neuropathic pains. It was here that the patient mentioned the homemade snow globe that he drank and let the medical team know that this was a case of ethylene glycol ingestion. Oxalate consumes calcium, although hypocalcemia is not a good marker for ethylene glycol ingestion. It's not specific and it's not sensitive to it. Hypocalcemia could cause the twitching. In some cases, neuropathy from ethylene glycol has been documented several days after ingestion, but the reasons for it happening are unclear. The muscle weaknesses could be due to calcium, but there isn't good data out there on why this happens. So what would be the treatment for this had it been diagnosed quickly? Well, if the breakdown products are what caused the problem, then a solution would be to stop those breakdown products from ever being made. Starting from the top, alcohol dehydrogenase can be competitively inhibited. Ethanol has a higher affinity for the active site in the enzyme than ethylene glycol. Because the body can renally excrete ethylene glycol as is, preoccupying the ADH enzyme for as long as possible can prevent conversion of the parent toxic alcohol to the toxic metabolites. There's also fomepazole, which inhibits ADH. It has a low rate of toxicity, and for some hospitals where it can be easily available, it's good if doctors have a low threshold to use it whenever toxic alcohol ingestion is suspected. And really, some cases of the ingestion are 
pretty obvious. High anion gap metabolic acidosis can be caused by several things that are enshrined in a few mnemonics that are taught in schools. It's not rare, and students are often going to see it on rotations. There was the old mud piles, which was methanol, uremia, diabetic ketoacidosis, paracetamol, propylene glycol, infection, iron, isoniazid, lactic acidosis, ethylene glycol, and salicylate. But there's also a newer gold mark, glycol, oxoproline, L-lactate, D-lactate, methanol, aspirin, renal failure, and ketoacidosis. Acute oxalate nephropathy can also happen from eating too many peanuts, which is a source of oxalate by itself. In this case, it's not broken down by the liver, it's just floating around in large amounts. This nephropathy can also come from too much vitamin C, and it can also come from starfruit and iced tea. Ethylene glycol toxicity is not fun. It's not easy to diagnose. Collecting a history on patients in this setting is notoriously difficult. And waiting for acute nephropathy to happen is impending disaster because that renal damage, it's not reversible. In many cases, these are patients who are alcoholics and they may be going through alcohol withdrawal. The treatment happens to be more of that alcohol that caused their withdrawal in the first place. And that's if the hospital doesn't have the medicine, fomepazole. And many hospitals don't have fomepazole. The high anion gap metabolic acidosis, while confusing to understand, centers upon the acid-base equilibrium equation. The notion that positive and negative charges in body water must be equal and that changes in those charges will trigger shifts in the amount of acid and base present in the body. The formation and deposition of calcium oxalate crystals in the kidney tissue induces an inflammatory response along with the crystals destroying tissue, which results in permanent kidney damage from apparent alcohol that by itself, ironically, is not toxic. Thanks so much for watching. Take care of yourself and be well.